0: I can't have my students do a podcast episode without creating some kind of sample or at least trying it myself. I also can't start this podcast without addressing Ted Bundy, who we're going to read about in Elizabeth Kendall's The Phantom Prince, My Life with Ted Bundy, later this semester. It's book two of four student elected texts that we are reading in class. It's important to me in covering this case, not to give you all the details of Ted Bundy's childhood in life and every misstep along the way, you can look that up on your own. You're not going to find the answers or speculation as to what made Bundy commit these repeated crimes against humanity that he's so well known for. I don't care about the stigma surrounding his birth, his childhood behaviors and injuries, and early successes in college and with women. What I want to focus on instead is the cultural obsessionality with a brutal rapist and murderer, which now spends generations even knowing what he did. My sources include a 2019 heavy article by Jessica McBride titled, Ted Bundy Victims List and Photos, How Many Women Did He Kill? and Rule's Chome The Stranger Beside Me, originally published in 1980, but updated again in 2008. And I pull quotes from this updated version. The Associated Press's uh, January 25th, 1989 article, A List of Women Ted Bundy Has Confessed to Killing, J.D. Rockefeller's Slim 2016 ebook, Ted Bundy, The Worst and Most Popular Serial Killer in American History, and several smaller news sources, all of which are directly mentioned. I also indirectly reference the Ted Bundy tapes found on Netflix and also found on Netflix, the film adaption of Elizabeth Kendall's book, which is called Extremely Wicked, Shockingly Evil and Vile, has the same director. Very interesting. Heavy's Jessica McBride writes, Serial killer Ted Bundy, with his wild eyes and disturbing charisma, is back in the public's imagination because of an Netflix documentary and upcoming movie with Zac Afron that some people believe inappropriately sexualizes the murderer. In real life, though, Bundy was able to use his manipulative and superficial charm, his white-collar jobs, he was a law student, political aide, and so forth, and his, some said, good looks to disarm victims. In so doing, Bundy, who left a trail of murdered women throughout the U.S., secured his place in history as one of the United States' most notorious serial killers. After detailing the names of all alleged and confirmed victims alive, missing, or dead, Anne Rule wrote, and the stranger beside me, one day the earth and the rivers may give up more remains all that is left of the young women whose names are still unknown the women ted referred to when he said add one more digit to that and you'll have it but none of them could fill the hollow soul of ted bundy mcbride continues he once told federal agents of the real total add one digit to that the 30 confessions and you'll have it the seattle times reports that bundy's victims included 11 in washington state Law enforcement investigators were not able to identify all the victims and suspected he killed dozens more, the newspaper reported. His murder spree is usually believed to have started in Washington state in 1974, according to biography.com, but this is disputed and I'll get into that later on in this episode. I tend to agree with what Ann Rule wrote, though it's up to you to make up your own decision. I believe like she does that Bundy started murdering much earlier. According to Oxygen, Bundy killed in Washington, Colorado, Utah, Oregon, Florida, Idaho, and California. Michael Newton's The Encyclopedia of Serial Killers also says that some experts think Bundy may have killed more than 100 women and girls, and they believe that he might have started killing in adolescence, but the book notes there's not a lot of evidence in some of the cases and no evidence in others in some cases remains were discovered In others the women simply disappeared no. i'm okay. going to list all 28 named individuals that Anne rule includes and many details about what each of these alleged and confirmed victims suffered though i'm not including the extremely graphic details noted in some of my sources I will tell you what happened, but I'm not going to go into gratuitous graphic detail. This episode is not for those who want to know all about the garbage person Ted Bundy was, but to bear witness to the girls and women who were innocent. Many of these were children, though they are often reported as, quote, young women. But the several 12 to 16 year olds were actual children, and this man horrifically and mercilessly sought them out brutalized and murdered them. Perhaps by the end of this rather lengthy list, you will also agree that discussions about Bundy being attractive, the aforementioned TikTok trend, pretending to be a victim of his, and serial killer merch are not only inappropriate, but absolutely sickening. I feel like the, the kairos of this conversation is still important, even though this conversation resurfaced in 2019 with the mention of those films that McBride talked about earlier on. I just saw today a an ad for a Ted Bundy Valentine. We're talking about Jeffrey Dahmer later on in this class too. And I saw Valentine's for like a Jeffrey Dahmer victim. All of these are really inappropriate and I think we need to stop and remember that for someone this really happened to them and for someone this is their family member their loved one and it's really horrific so thinking about the way in which we can ethically consume true crime i chose to focus this episode on the girls and women whose lives bundy impacted so this is going to be a long list it is little heavy. Feel free to take a break when you need to but it's important to me to list all of these 28 names in front of me and get through this. This episode is going to be much longer than those that follow as I'm covering not just one case but a large number of cases committed by serial rapist and murderer My episode is going to be considerably longer than those of my students that follow. However, I hope that you'll consider sticking with me and hear more about these girls and young women. So let's get started with number one, Karen Sparks. And I've arranged this chronologically. So we're starting January 4th, 1974. Bundy, then attending the University of Puget Sound Law School, mercilessly beats University of Washington student Karen Sparks at her Seattle home. Sparks, who is also known as Joni Lenz in some publications, becomes one of the few Bundy victims to survive, though she suffers permanent brain damage and damage to her internal organs as a result of the attack, and that's confirmed by Ann Rule, by Biography.com, and a number of other sources. Ann Rule writes that Detective Joyce Johnson, a 22 year veteran on the force told her the scene of this assault had disturbed her mightily in that it was so vicious. Sparks was a friendly shy girl who had no enemies. So detectives could not find a motive for the 18 year old being so violently attacked as she was sleeping in her own bed. Number two, February 1st, 1974, Linda Ann Healy. Linda Ann Healy, a ski forecaster and senior studying psychology at the University of Washington lived off campus in a house with four other students, Marty Sands, Jill Hodges, Lorna Moss and Barbara Little at 5517 12th Northeast. According to Ann Rule, the girls had read of the attack on Karen Sparks just a few blocks away in January, and they took the proper precautions, locked their doors, went out in pairs after dark, discouraged men who seemed odd, etc. After going out to Dante's, a local tavern popular with UW students, Linda returned home with her roommates, talked on the phone with a former boyfriend for about an hour, and then went to her room in the basement. Early the morning of the 1st, Her roommates discovered that Linda had vanished from her room sometime in the early morning hours, leaving behind a carefully made bed, but with blood on the pillow. The side door that they never left unlocked, that was in fact kind of difficult to open, was unlocked. She was identified only by a lower mandible and dental records 14 months later, on March 3, 1975, along those of other women, who I will also mention, outside Seattle on Taylor Mountain, where Bundy dumped multiple bodies. Number three is Donna Manson. And we are at March 12th, 1974. 19-year-old Donna Gail Manson was a typical Evergreen student, a highly intelligent girl who marched to a different drummer. Her father taught music in Seattle Public Schools, and Donna shared his talent and interest in music. She was a flautist, expert enough to play in the symphony, according to Ann Rule. On the rainy Tuesday night of March 12th, 1974, Donna disappeared while going to a jazz concert in Washington State, according to Newton and Rule. She left her dorm at 7 p.m. but was not seen at the concert. Sheriff Redmond commenting that she probably didn't make it that far. Manson didn't fit the same wheelie wee profile as Linda Ann Healy and Catherine Devine, who we are also going to talk about later. She also wasn't a great student in spite of her high IQ, and as investigators talked with her best friend, Teresa Olson, her ex-roommate, Celia Dryden, and other girls in the dorm, they reported Manson's obsession with death, magic, and alchemy. These, combined with her near-daily marijuana use, made investigators think she died by suicide, but a psychiatrist later studied her writings and dismissed that theory. According to the Desiree News, Bundy confessed that he killed Manson, took her skull to his girlfriend's house, and burned it in the fireplace, down to the last ash, in a fit of paranoia and cleanliness. Number four, Susan Rancourt, April 17th, 1974. Susan Elaine Rancourt was a freshman at Central Washington State College in Ellensburg, and Rancourt was one of six children in a close family who had been a cheerleader and homecoming queen in LaConnor Washington High School. Rule writes, While Linda Healy had been cautious and Donna Manson had been heedless of danger, Susan Rancourt was frankly Afraid of the dark, of being out alone, she never went anywhere without her roommate after the sun had set. After taking a load of clothes to the dorm laundry at 8 o'clock and attending an advisor's meeting at 9 p.m. for prospective RAs, she planned to see a German film with a friend and return to turn over her laundry to the dryer at 10, but Rancourt vanished after leaving the meeting. According to the Daily Record News, Susan Rancourt was a 5'2", 118-pound blonde with blue eyes who came to Central from Anchorage, Alaska. She was also majoring in biology and was last seen in a meeting in Munson Hall for future residence hall leaders. Multiple students shared seeing or talking with a tall, handsome man with his arm in a sling and a metal brace on his finger, who was asking for help getting his books and to his Volkswagen Bug on April 12th and the 17th. And he was notably only asking petite women. One of the female students who helped this man get his books into the hood of the car, she noticed his passenger seat was missing entirely, got scared, had a bad feeling, and immediately ran away. Unfortunately, she ran to safety. Oxygen reports that Rancourt, whose remains were also found on Taylor Mountain, was bludgeoned to death. Bundy later confessed to murdering Rancourt as well. Number five, Roberta Kathy Parks, May 6, 1974. Roberta Kathy Parks was only 22 when she went for a walk around her neighborhood and was never seen again, according to Newton. Rule writes that she was a world religions major who, though subject to wide mood swings, disappeared after leaving Sackett Hall to meet some friends for coffee in the Student Union building. Rule reports that Kathy had spent an unhappy and guilt ridden day in her room in Sackett Hall on the Oregon State University campus in Corvallis, which is 250 miles south. South of Seattle, She'd recently broken up with her boyfriend, was really homesick for California, and she'd gotten into a fight with her father on the phone on May 4th, which is just two days before he suffered a massive heart attack. Kathy had heard the morning of the 6th that it looked like her father would survive, and she left just before 11am, promising her roommate she'd return within the hour, but she never did. Rule also writes that Park's skull was found on Taylor Mountain on March 3rd, 1975 and parks was also identified by dental records. Number 6, Brenda Baker, May 25th, 1974. Rule notes that 15-year-old Brenda Joy Baker was hitchhiking as a runaway. On June 17th, her badly decomposed body was found at the edge of Miller-Sylvania State Park. It was too late to determine cause of death or to make quick identification. But again, dental records confirmed to the body to be Baker's. And this was only found just a few miles away from where Kathy Devine was recovered. Both locations close to I-5, which is the freeway that runs between Seattle and Olympia. So linking these things somewhat, J.D. Rockefeller notes that Budney denied the murder before his execution. Still, Brenda Baker is believed to have been a victim of Bundy's though not much is known about her life. Number seven, Brenda Ball, June 1st, 1974. Brenda Carol Ball was 22 and had been a Highland Community College student until just two weeks before she vanished. Rule writes that she was 5'3, 112 pounds, and her brown eyes sparkled with her zest for life. Ball went alone to the Flame Tavern at 128 South and bomb Road South, and she stayed until closing at 2 a.m. Ball simply disappeared outside Barry in Washington, according to the Associated Press. And Rule writes Ball was more of a free spirit like Donna Manson. was given to impulsive trips so she wasn't reported missing by her two roommates until 19 days later according to oxygen ball was last seen talking to a man with his arm in a sling before she vanished on saturday march 1st 1975 two green river community college students were working on a forestry survey project on taylor mountain when one stumbled onto the skull which was later identified through dental records to belong to brenda ball it was her remains that were found first that sparked the investigation and thorough search of Taylor Mountain to the recovery of so many other young women. Number eight, George Ann Hawkins, June 10th, 1974. Georgianne Hawkins was an 18 year old golden girl, as Anne Rule writes, who had been a cheerleader and an honor student at Lakes High School. She was a bright, vivacious, younger child of two who was part of one of the top sororities on campus, Kappa Alpha Theta. She was just about to finish her freshman year at the University of Washington, and she was stressing her Spanish final exam that was scheduled for the 11th. On the evening of the 10th, Hawkins had gone to the Beta Theta Pi house, just six houses down from her own, at 4521 17th Avenue Northeast to say goodnight to her boyfriend, and then she was going back to her place to study and then to sleep. Anne Rule writes The alley that runs in back of the Greek houses from 45th Northeast to 47th Northeast is as bright as day, lit by streetlights every 10 feet or so. June 10th was a warm night and every window opening onto the alleyway, it was surrounded by frat houses, was open. It's doubtful that any of the student residents were asleep, even at 1230 a.m. when Hawkins left to walk home. As Hawkins was walking back to her sorority house, three male students who knew her saw her walking 50 feet, leaving only 40 feet to her house. But Hawkins never made it. Her roommate, Dee Nichols, alerted the house mother at 3 a.m., and they called the police later that morning, with them arriving at the sorority house at 8.45 on the 11th. According to the Charlie Project, in his confession, Bundy claimed he had asked Hawkins to help him with a briefcase and then knocked her out, eventually strangling her. According to GB News, her death was the one he spoke most about. Rule describes Bundy's confession to Dr. Bob Keppel, saying that he had approached Hawkins asking for help getting his briefcase to his car, which is parked in a dark lot on 47th. There was a lot of construction at the time. The university was just using these kind of satellite lots. And he parked there. It didn't have any lighting. He surprised her, bludgeoned her with a crowbar, handcuffed her, drove her out to Mercer Island, and then detailed talking with her for some time. He remarked that she was quite lucid when she regained consciousness, but then he attacked her, murdered her, and left her. Numbers nine and 10, Janice Ann Ott and Denise Marie Nasland. July 14th, 1974. According to KIRO 7, the attacks on Janice Ann Ott and Denise Marie Nasland were of Bundy's most brazen because thousands of people were in the park that day. Ann Rule writes that the day was beautiful and in the 80s, approaching 90s, and 40,000 people were jockeying for spots at Lake Sammamish State Park where in addition to it being a nice day that encouraged families to come and enjoy the park, the Rainier Brewery was holding its annual beer bust in the park, and there was also a Seattle Police Athletic Association picnic. At 1130 that morning, a young woman was approached by a young man who asked if she could assist him in loading his sailboat onto his metallic brown VW bug in the parking lot, as he couldn't on his own due to his, quote, bum arm. He had his arm in a sling. Again, very familiar tactic now. But when she walked over to the car with him, there was no sailboat. He said that it was just a jump up the hill at his folks place, but she knew something was off refused, and he seemed to take it pretty good-naturedly, because he just said okay and kept it moving. At 12.30 though, that young woman saw the same man talk with Janice Ann Ott, who was a 23-year-old probation case worker at the King County Youth Service Center in Seattle. Her husband, Jim, was away completing a course in the design of prosthetic devices for the handicapped in Riverdale, California. Ott was very petite, only 100 pounds, barely 5 feet tall, had long blonde hair, parted in the middle, and gray-green eyes. She looked more like a high school student than a 23-year-old. She biked over to the Lake Sammamish State Park from her house she was sharing with a girl in Issaquah, which is a town nearby, to enjoy the sun and plan to return that afternoon. She chatted with a man who approached her, asking for her help, loading up his sailboat at his parents' house nearby. She was last spotted pushing her bike toward the parking lot while talking to, quote, Ted, as the young man was giving out a first name to people, Ted. A little before 4 p.m., a 16-year-old girl was approached by a young man with his arm in a sling as she was leaving the bathroom, and he asked if she could help him launch his sailboat. She shook her head, but he insisted and even grabbed her arm, but she was able to get away. At 4.15 p.m., he tried to get another woman to help him again. He's hanging out by the bathrooms here at the lake, but she said she was in a hurry, had friends waiting, so he said, that's okay but continued to stare at her before walking away. At 4.30 p.m. Denise Naslin got up where she was sitting with her boyfriend and another couple to visit the restroom and she never returned. Denise Naslin was an 18 year old girl only two days older than Susan Rancourt. She was dark haired dark eyed, beautiful, petite, 5'4", 120 pounds. She was studying to be a computer programmer and she'd come to the park for a picnic as a welcome break in her busy schedule. Naslund had driven her friends to the park in her 1963 Chevrolet that morning, but when she didn't return from the bathroom, her boyfriend and other two friends grew restless and worried, waiting for her to return until after sundown. A 20-year-old woman had just refused the man a little before 5 p.m., telling him she wasn't strong enough to help with his boat, and presumably Naslund was the next person Ted asked for help. Her three friends found Nazlin's dog alone and her car still in the now empty parking lot, and they reported her missing to a park ranger at 8.30pm. Jim Ott repeatedly called the rented house where his wife was living on 75 Front Street in Issaquah, but no one answered. He learned his wife was missing Tuesday morning and immediately caught a flight to Seattle from California. About 1.9 miles away from Lake Sammamish State Park, their scattered remains were found on September 6, 1974 by Elsie Hammonds, a Seattle construction worker who immediately called the police. The high heat and animals had reduced the remains to bone, and no clothing, no jewelry, no backpack, no bicycle parts, or any other possession were found with the bones, indicating the women had been discarded naked. They were both identified by dental records and confirmed dead, but additional femur bones were impossible to identify. Later on, Bundy says that one of those femur bones at least belonged to George Ann Hawkins. 11. Nancy Wilcox. October 2nd, 1974. 16-year-old Nancy Wilcox walked out of her Utah home and was never seen again alive, according to ABC4. The Charlie Project reports, Nancy was last seen riding in a yellow Volkswagen bug near her home on Arnett Drive in Holiday, Utah on October 2, 1974. She went out to buy a pack of gum and was never heard from again. She was a student at Olympus High School, a cheerleader, and she was active in her local Mormon church. Authorities initially classified her as a runway, as happened so often in the 70s, but Nancy was only the first of many girls and young women to disappear from Utah during this time period. Bundy stated that she was never in his car, however. He confessed that he abducted her at knife point, assaulted her in a nearby orchard, and strangled her. He said he buried her body near Capitol Reef National Park, over 200 miles away from the site of her disappearance but the site has never been found. 12. Melissa Smith, October 18, 1974. Melissa Ann Smith was the 17-year-old daughter of a police chief in Midvale, Utah. She was petite but cautious as her father, Chief Smith, had warned her repeatedly of danger. And that Friday night, she was heading out to an all-girl slumber party when her friend called about a fight with her boyfriend and asked Melissa to come talk to her at the pizza place where she worked. Melissa stayed and comforted her friend until a little after 10 p.m. when she left to go back home to get her clothes for the party and head out. But Smith never made it home. Nine days later, her nude body was found in the mountains. She too had been raped and strangled, according to ABC4. Pathologist Serge Moore performed the autopsy and discovered that she had been beaten savagely Presumably, with a crowbar that left bruises and fractures all over her body, but the cause of death was strangulation. Little blood had been found near her body, so it was likely she was killed elsewhere before being left by her killer near Summit Park. It's just horrible. We have another 17 year old. So number 13, Laura Amy. October 31st, 1974. Yes, we are still in 1974, this is all the same year. Laura Amy was a 17 year old girl who was nearly six feet tall, but only 115 pounds. She dropped out of school, moved in with her friends in American Fork, Utah, and was working low paying jobs to support herself, though she was still really close to her family in Salem, Utah, and talked to them frequently. Around midnight on Halloween night, Laura had left a cafe because it wasn't very exciting and headed to a nearby park, but then vanished. Her family didn't know she was missing for four days until they called her friends that she was living with and they said they hadn't seen her since Halloween. Hikers later discovered her body in the Wasatch Mountains on the riverbank below a parking lot in American Fork Canyon on November 27th, which was Thanksgiving Day in 1974. Her body was nude, just like Melissa Smith. The pathologist, Dr. Moore, found she'd been beaten, mercilessly raped, and strangled to death. Her face was unrecognizable, but her father was able to identify her in the morgue on Thanksgiving from the writing scars she got, had gotten in a writing accident at 11. 14. Carol Duranche November eighth, 1974 Carol DeRanche, an 18-year-old who was a recent high school graduate and employee of Mountain Bell Telephone Company, still lived with her parents, and around 6.30 on the rainy night of November 8th, she drove her new Camaro toward the Fashion Place shopping mall in suburban Murray, Utah. According to Ann Rule, she was approached by a well-dressed man with a mustache as she looked at books in Walden's bookstore and asked about her car and license plate number, as he said someone was trying to break into her vehicle and he needed to know if it was hers. After checking that nothing in her car was missing with the man, who later identified himself quickly as Officer Rosalind of Murray Police Department and gave her a glimpse at a badge but she couldn't really tell if it was real or fake or even the number on it, he insisted that she get into his Volkswagen bug to potentially identify the would-be burglar at the substation. Even though Durant objected, saying she was shopping and didn't even know her car was being broken in, he convinced her to get into the car, where it was immediately apparent the man had been drinking because she could smell it on his breath. Durant tried to escape near the Macmillan grade school, but was partially handcuffed. Still, she fought and screamed. Making the man so angry, he said, If you don't stop screaming, I'm going to kill you. I'll blow your brains out. DeRanche kept fighting and fell out of the car onto the parking lot with the man dropping the pistol he was holding and then picking up a crowbar. She managed to kick him and the genitals and run out onto 3rd Avenue East in front of a car being driven by Wilbur and Mary Walsh, who drove her to the Murray Police Station on State Street. On October 2nd, 1975, Carol Duranche and others who encountered him on November 8th identified Ted Bundy in a lineup. His mother and adopted father, Louise and Johnny Bundy, raised the 15 grand needed for bail, and Bundy was freed on November twentieth, 1975, from Salt Lake County Jail. Bundy elected to have a bench trial with Judge Stuart Hansen for the aggravated kidnapping of Carol Durant, meaning that he was waiving trial by jury and just going with the judge's verdict. And that trial began on Monday, February 23rd, 1976. And Rule was at that trial and recalls that Carol Durant sobbed during her testimony, noting she wasn't a confident witness, particularly when compared to Cool collected Bundy. But then again, how could she be? Judge Hansen found him guilty on March 1st, and he was sentenced on June 30th for only one to 15 years. But This is the start of him getting caught and not being able to continue. And Carol Durant survived and you can see more of her story and some of her interview in the Ted Bundy tapes and other documentaries floating around. Going back to November 8th, 1974, the same night that Carol Durant was abducted and got away, 15 is Debbie Kent. 17-year-old Debbie Kent and her parents attended a premiere performance of the play The Redhead in Bountiful, Utah, according to Ann Rule. At the play, the young drama teacher Jean Graham was approached by a well-dressed handsome man who courteously asked if she would help him identify a car in the parking lot, but Graham refused. She was in charge of the play and went on her way. He asked her again for help at intermission because he was still lurking around backstage, but Graham was afraid and said her husband might be able to help him better. He didn't seem to be interested in that option. Debbie Kent left at intermission to call her brother, where he was at the roller rink because the play would not be over in time. It was going long, so they would be late to picking him up past the time when the roller rink would be closed. She volunteered to leave early to pick up her brother, promising her parents that she would return for them. She never made it to the roller rink, and several residents reported hearing two short piercing screams coming from the west parking lot. But when witnesses came outside to look, they couldn't see anyone or anything in the dark parking lot. Kent never appeared to have even made it to her car. 16. Karen Campbell, January 12, 1975 23-year-old Karen Campbell, a registered nurse, engaged to Dr. Raymond Godowski, was staying at the Wildwood Inn in Snowmass, Colorado, with him and his two children, according to Ann Rule. Aspen Peak and Ann Rule report, Campbell went back to room 210, where she was staying, to get a magazine, but she never came back to the lounge to meet Godowski, and when he went to the room, there was no answer. The room still looked the same, her belongings were all still there, indicating she'd likely never even made it to the room at all. Gadowski reported her missing a little after 10pm to the Aspen Police Department, worried she'd gotten sicker and needed help. She had had the flu that day and had been doing a lot. They had gone out to dinner and were going to be reading afterwards when she disappeared. Police questioned everyone at the Wildwood Inn and searched the hotel thoroughly the next morning. Karen was never seen alive again, but on the 18th of February, a recreational employee found nude remains by Al Creek. Dr. Donald Clark, the pathologist who performed the post-mortem examination, identified her by dental records, noticing deep cuts from a sharp weapon, repeated blunt instrument blows to the skull, and a cracked hyoid bone suggesting possible strangulation. Her undigested food indicated that Campbell had been murdered shortly after being abducted from the hotel on the 12th. 17. Julie Cunningham, March 15, 1975. 26-year-old Julie Cunningham was a beautiful clerk in a sporting goods store and also a part-time ski instructor who shared an apartment with a girlfriend in Vail, Colorado. Ann Rule reports that Cunningham wasn't the best judge of men, often getting her heart broken after believing promises from her suitors and she desperately wanted marriage and children. On Saturday night, March 15th, Cunningham had called her mom, Feeling a little bit better after talking to her and hanging up around 9pm, she decided to go meet her roommate at a tavern a few blocks away for a beer, but she never made it. According to the Charlie Project, Bundy stated he lured Julie into his vehicle by posing as an injured skier on crutches and asking her to help carry his ski boots. He knocked her unconscious, drove her to a remote area about 80 miles west of Vale, and raped her. Bundy stated Cunningham regained consciousness at some point and tried to escape, but he caught her and he, he murdered her then and disposed her body in a shallow grave near Rife, Colorado. Bundy said the gravesite was in a high desert area with a circular drive and large trees. In April 1989, a team of experts who specialized in finding bodies brought a bloodhound to a likely spot, but their search didn't turn up anything of interest, and Julie Cunningham has never been found. 18. Denise Oliverson April 6, 1975. According to Ann Rule Denise Lynn Oliverson was a newly married 25 year old who had left her home in Grand Junction Colorado after a spat with her new husband riding her yellow bike over to her parents house to cool down. When she didn't return that night her husband figured she needed space and had stayed with her parents but when he called her parents the next morning they were shocked they hadn't seen her. The police were called and searched the route, but they only found her bike and sandals beneath a viaduct near a railroad bridge close by the Colorado River on US 50. Bundy later confessed to her murder to Detective Bob Keppel before his execution in 1989. The Charlie Project reports that he claims to have abducted her, killed her in his car near the Utah State Line, and dumped her body in the Colorado River, but she's never been recovered and her case is still open and unsolved. 19. Melanie Cooley, April 15th, 1975 Anne Rule remarks that 18-year-old Melanie Suzanne Cooley looked so much like Debbie Kent they might have been twins. On the 15th of April in 1975, Melanie walked away from her high school in Nederland, a tiny mountain town 50 miles west of Denver, Colorado, and vanished. Associated Press News reports that country road workers found her battered body on the Coal Creek Canyon Road 20 miles away on May 3rd. She had been bludgeoned on the back of her head, her hands were tied and a filthy pillowcase, was still twisted around her neck, indicating strangulation. Not much else is known about Melanie Cooley. 20. Lynette Culver, May 6th, 1975 On the afternoon of the 6th of May 1975, 12-year-old Lynette Culver of Pocatello, Idaho, boarded a bus at Hawthorne Junior High School bound for Fort Hall. She has never been heard from again. According to the Charlie Project, investigators initially believed she ran away, perhaps to a nearby Native American reservation, but they began to suspect foul play as time passed and nobody saw or heard from her. Bundy confessed to Lynette's murder shortly before his execution, claiming he abducted her, took her to a room in the Holiday Inn, where he raped her, drowned her in the bathtub, and dumped her in the Snake River. However, other young girls in the area went missing around the same time and under similar circumstances after Bundy was incarcerated, so Culver's case is still marked as unsolved today. 21. Susan Curtis, June 27, 1975 15-year-old Susan Curtis was attending the Bountiful Orchard Youth Conference at Brigham Young University in Provo, Utah when she disappeared on June 27, 1975, according to the Charlie Project. Curtis was a student at Words Cross High School who was on the track team and the girls' baseball team. Though she had had a history of running away from home for days at a time, she was never gone long and always came back. On the day of her disappearance, she had ridden her bicycle fifty miles from Bountiful to Provo to attend the conference, which lasted two days. Susan was last seen on the first day of the conference. That evening, following a formal banquet at the Wilkinson Student Center, she left her friends to walk back to her dormitory and brush her teeth. The distance was about a quarter of a mile. Authorities don't believe Susan ever arrived at her dormitory because when they checked her toothbrush later, it was dry. A professor at the university may have seen Susan four days after she went missing as she was trying to sell a textbook in the back of his class. He identified her from a photograph and stated she was wearing a blue knit top and faded blue jeans at the time. Besides this alleged sighting, there has been no indication of Susan's whereabouts since the day she disappeared. Ted Bundy confessed to Susan's murder before his execution. He stated he'd buried her body along a highway near Price, Utah, but a search of the site turned up no evidence. Susan's never been located, but it is believed she was one of his victims. 22. Shelley Robertson, July 1st, 1975. 24-year-old Shelly K. Robertson failed to show up for work in Golden, Colorado, according to Ann Rule friends confirmed seeing Robertson on the 30th of June and a police officer saw her on the 1st of July at a service station but no one saw her afterward as she'd been a frequent hitchhiker her family hoped she'd just taken off on a whim to visit some new place but they would see her alive again unfortunately on August 21st Robertson's nude body was discovered 500 feet down a mine shaft at the foot of the Birds Ode Pass hopefully i pronounced that right by two mining students As decomposition was far advanced, it was impossible to determine the cause of death. Almost 100 miles from Denver, the mine is quite close to Vail, so it was presumed that Julie Cunningham's body was also going to be inside the mine, but they never found her. And here is a gap that I wanted to explain why there was a huge gap from July 1st, 1975 until 1978. And that's January 1978. And that's because Ted Bundy was arrested at 2.30 a.m. on the 16th of August 1975 by Sergeant Bob Hayward after he tried to evade Hayward by blowing two stop signs and having apparent burglary tools in his VW bug. He was surveilled by law enforcement from then on until his October 2nd, 1975 arrest for the aggravated kidnapping of Carol Durange. After being sentenced those 1 to 15 years for that crime, Bundy was incarcerated and awaiting trial for several other cases. But he escaped June 7, 1977 from the courthouse in Aspen. He jumped out the window and ran away, only to be stopped in Aspen at 2 a.m. on Monday, June 13th, as a presumed drunk driver who was fishtailing in a Cadillac. Bundy escaped from Garfield County Jail in Glenwood Springs, Colorado on December 30th, 1977. By 11 a.m. that next morning, Bundy was already in Chicago before anyone even knew he was gone. He arrived in Tallahassee, Florida at the Florida State University campus on Sunday morning, the 8th of January in 1978 with a new identity, Chris Hagen, and set up a room at The Oak So this is numbers 23 through 27. This is the Chi Omega murders. Kathy Kleiner, Karen Chandler, Margaret Bowman, Lisa Levy, and Cheryl Thomas. And this is a long one, but I want to share how quickly all of this happened. January 14th, 1978 is a really infamous day, and... This particular attack is really important contextually, especially because it has been compared so frequently to the recent University of Idaho murders by Brian Koberger, who is a 28-year-old PhD student who was accused of killing four University of Idaho students Sunday, November 13th, 2022. And because there are so many parallels that we have seen and so many of my students have asked, I'm covering this one in a bit more depth. But again, leaving out a lot of the graphic things I want to show how quickly these things happened and to also remember the survivors and the victims just because somebody was fortunate enough to survive doesn't mean that they don't have lasting damage and impact and they had to go through the horrifics of a public televised trial which was really outrageous especially being questioned by Bundy himself when he was acting counsel so this is an enormous case but I will try to do it justice. Only a few blocks away from the Oak, where Bundy was staying, the Chi Omega sorority house was at 661 West Jefferson Street. And that Saturday night, which was the 14th of January in 1978, it was a busy and late night for almost all the girls living at the sorority house. 21-year-old St. Petersburg, Florida native, Margaret Bowman had a blind date at 9.30, set up by her sorority sister, Melanie Nelson. Lisa Levy, 20 and also from St. Petersburg, went out to Sherrod's, a popular disco that was actually just next door to the Chi Omega house with Melanie Nelson. Levy was tired and only stayed for about a half an hour before returning home next door in bedroom number four. As her roommate was gone home for the weekend, she was alone. Several young women at Sherrod's that night noticed a lone young man who reportedly made them feel very uncomfortable, but they couldn't identify why, really. It was just the way he was looking at the women and his energy, and they just didn't trust him. Melanie Nelson and friends left after charades closed at 2 a.m. to again go home next door to the Chi Omega sorority house. But they found the door unlocked, which is really weird because they always locked the door. Margaret Bowman was waiting in the living room to update Melanie Nelson on her date. And the girls went to Bowman's room number nine to discuss. Rule reports that Melanie said goodnight to Margaret at exactly 2.35 a.m. before going down the hall to the bathroom chatting with another sorority sister before getting to her room at 2 45 a.m and melanie says that she was looking at the clock specifically which is why she was able to report the times she looked before she left and then when she got back in to her room another sister nita neary arrived home at 3 a.m to find the back door standing open Upon entering the house, she heard a loud thump, and then someone running down the upstairs corridor down the front stairs, so she hid, but saw a slender man wearing a dark jacket, a navy blue cap pulled down over the top half of his face, and it carried a club that appeared to be more of a log that he was holding with a cloth as he left. Thinking they'd been robbed, Nita Neary ran upstairs and woke up her roommate, Nancy Dowdy, before both returning downstairs and locking the doors. Still debating what to do as they climbed back up the stairs, they saw Karen Chandler come out of room number 8 and run down the hall, her hands holding her bloodied head. Chandler's roommate and number eight, Kathy Kleiner, had also been bludgeoned in the head. When Nita Neary's boyfriend started the car after dropping her off at 3 a.m., the car's headlights shone into Kleiner and Chandler's room, and it disrupted Bundy's attack, allowing the two women to survive it, according to Rolling Stone. After they called 911, Officer Oscar Brannon was on the scene at 3.23 a.m. and quickly joined by other officers and paramedics, Like, within a couple of minutes. In room number two, Lisa Levy was discovered unresponsive and without a pulse, with large bruises, pronounced swelling around her jaw, indicating likely strangulation, and horrific bites to her breast and buttocks. In spite of the concerted efforts of the paramedics, Lisa Levy could not be resuscitated. Rolling Stone reports that the bike marks on Lisa Levy were ultimately Bundy's undoing in court, as his teeth impressions were used to convict him of this murder. Margaret Bowman was then discovered in her bed with a shattered skull and a nylon stocking wound tightly into her neck. In spite of first responders noticing tree bark everywhere in the rooms of the the attacked girls, neither lisa levy nor margaret bowman had any defensive wounds, indicating that they had been asleep when they were attacked another sister carol johnston had come home at 2 55 a.m and like nita neary found the door ajar but she just went inside got ready for bed and she was brushing her teeth in the bathroom that had a swinging door when she heard a creak in the hall outside that was later revealed to be ted bundy before he left Moments later, Neary came in at three AM, narrowly escaping Bundy's notice as he ran out the door. The attacks took place in less than fifteen minutes. Cheryl Thomas was subsequently beaten in her apartment at four hundred thirty one Dunwoody apartment B by Bundy two tenths of a mile away from Chi omega At four AM, her two neighbors in apartment A woke to banging coming from under the house and then cries, moans, whimpers from Thomas's apartment. So they called her, and when she didn't answer their phone call, which was an agreed upon security check, they called 911 immediately. At 4.37 a.m., neighbors Debbie Cicerelli and Nancy Young heard a crash from next door, as Young was on the line with the 911 operator. Authorities discovered Cheryl Thomas on her bed, forcefully disrobed, bludgeoned, and groaning in pain. Though she survived the attack, Thomas's injuries were extensive, the worst of the surviving women that night, as Bundy's attack had left her in the hospital for a month with a broken jaw, permanent hearing loss, a fractured skull, and permanent nerve damage that left her with a noticeable limp and abnormal sense of equilibrium, which ruined her career as a dancer. Finally, 28, Kimberly Leach. February 9, 1978. On Thursday, February 9, 1978, 12-year-old Kimberly Diane Leach was a happy kid who had just been elected first runner-up to the Valentine Queen at Lake City Junior High School in Lake City, Florida. Kim had left her first period P.E. class to retrieve the purse that she'd left in the homeroom. When her friend Priscilla Blakeney saw a stranger beckoning Kim toward a white car, but she couldn't remember if she'd seen Kim get in the car or not, others reported seeing her leave with a man. Clarence Lee, Andy Anderson... A lieutenant and paramedic in the Lake City Fire Department was stopped behind a white van that was blocking traffic when he saw a young girl who was crying being led to the van forcefully by a man in his early 30s with wavy brown hair. They got in the van and sped off. That afternoon, the leeches got a call from the school asking about Kim as she wasn't in school, and they were distressed to hear she'd left during first period. On April 7, 1978, Searcher found the remains of Kimberly Diane Leach in an abandoned pig pet in the Suwannee State Park. She was identified by dental records by Jacksonville ME Dr. Peter Lipkovic, who could not definitively determine the cause of death due to the state of the remains, but he suggested signs of sexual assault and considerable damage to her neck, indicating possible strangulation. Bundy was later convicted, sentenced to death for the murder of Kimberly Leach on November 9, 1980, and executed by electric chair at Florida State Prison at 7.16 a.m. on Tuesday, January 24, 1989 so now we go on to possible victims these are widely contested in many cases it's just alleged or presumed victims who survived who died who were just missing so there's a lot ranging from 30 to upwards of 100 victims but i only have a few where there is a little bit more convincing evidence and also patterns that you can see line up um, demographic things that would indicate that potentially these would be targets of Bundy's based on his his known victims McBride notes that there are a lot of victims that play that were placed in the maybe Bundy did it category, for example, Nancy Perry Baird vanished on July 4th, 1975 from the gas station in East Layton, Utah, where she worked as an attendant. However, Bundy did not confess to her murder and there were inconsistencies in typical profiling and methodology for Bundy, and her case remains open and unsolved to date. According to the Charlie Project, Vicki Lynn Holler, a seamstress, was last seen getting into her vehicle on August 20, 1973, in Eugene, Oregon. Bundy did not confess to the crime, but was in the area at the time, and it's believed that Holler is one of his victims, although her body was never found. Rita Lorraine Jolly was another victim who might have been killed by Bundy, who vanished June 29, 1973 from Westland, Oregon. According to the Doe Network, she vanished while going for a walk around her neighborhood and was a high school junior. Bundy is among five suspects currently listed in the case. According to Newton's book, the earliest known confirmed murder victim of Bundy was an unidentified hitchhiker in Washington state in 1973. He killed a 12-year-old girl two years later, the book says. The victims all looked remarkably similar, typically with long, straight, dark hair parted in the middle. According to Ann Rule's book, there are three victims Ted Bundy refused to name. She believes his first victim was Anne Marie Burr, who was an 8-year-old girl in Tacoma, Washington, when Bundy was 14, turning 15, and reportedly he was the morning paperboy for the Burrs. Burr also took piano lessons next door to the house where Bundy's Uncle John lived. She disappeared August 31, 1961, when her parents awoke to the living room window and front door both being left wide open. Ann Rule says that Bundy, though confessing to many additional murders at the end of his life, shied away from discussion of his child victims, and he later denounced the murder in a letter to the Burrs directly in 1986. She believes that his second victim was Lonnie Trumbull, a stewardess in Seattle who was bludgeoned to death with a piece of lumber by an unknown assailant in her bed on June 23, 1966. Her roommate, Lisa Wick, was also beaten on the head but survived the attack. Rule believes he also murdered Catherine Mary Devine, though again, Bundy didn't admit to it. He told Detective Bob Keppel that he'd picked up a hitchhiker in 1973 near Olympia, murdered her, and left her body somewhere in the forest between Olympia and Aberdeen on the Washington coast, which is exactly where Kathy Devine was found after being murdered in December of 1973. The book, Ted Bundy, the worst and most popular serial killer in America's history by J.D. Rockefeller also lists these women as possible victims. Sandra Jean Weaver of Utah, Carol D. Valenzuela, and Martha Morrison of Vancouver, and Debbie Smith of Salt Lake City, Utah. Though I've read countless articles, Kendall's The Phantom Prince, Rule's Stranger Beside Me, have seen the Ted Bundy tapes, Extremely Wicked, Shockingly Evil and Vile, and have heard a large number of podcast episodes covering Bundy's cases, have researched this episode at length, and have focused almost completely on the girls and women Bundy attack, I still struggle to find published timelines with details about each of these girls and women in chronological order, which is why I approached it in this way. This episode is considerably longer than those that follow by students, but it was important to me to cover this case as thoroughly as I could um, without it being too terribly long because that could have taken seriously hours and hours and to say the name of each girl and each woman and to bear witness to what happened to them. Each of these were real people who did nothing wrong and they were still attacked. If we're going to continue to consume true crime media for entertainment, we must come to terms with the human cost for victims, for survivors, and for friends and family. In her 2008 update to The Stranger Beside Me, Ann Rule writes that she hopes sharing the recollections of the women who survived will draw readers attention to why they did. They fought, they screamed, they ran, they didn't answer the door, they didn't buy the flawed or glib stories, and they trusted their intuition. It's important to note that many of Bundy's victims didn't have the opportunity to fight back. They were actually asleep in their own beds. And for many who were abducted, who knows what they tried to do to save their lives, or what they said, or what they, how they tried to fight. These girls and women did nothing wrong. No matter how they responded to being violently abducted and or attacked, There is no way to prevent harm from someone who is intentionally seeking you out and seeking to do that harm. And that's a really important takeaway from this case. The impulse to read or watch true crime for many of us seems to be more about how to learn to stay alive. Maybe by noticing something, having a game plan in place to calm your mind from panicking in the moment, or by having some kind of training maybe physical, maybe forensic. We might be able to avoid, escape, or fend off attackers, or at least leave some evidence. Still, this empowerment from knowledge of these cases comes at a great cost to those who are directly impacted by it. How we treat their stories matters. Thank you for sticking with me through this really dark and long episode. Now I know why so many podcasts have something different at the end. It's difficult to just end with, yeah... He was prosecuted for this, but the havoc that Bundy wreaked across the United States and the fear that he struck in the hearts and minds of so many Americans is just uh, really heavy. I appreciate you listening. This is by no means an exhaustive account. I tried my best with the time constraints and this being our first season of the podcast. I am sure that the episodes that follow are going to be 10,000% better because my students are doing them and they're wonderful. I hope that you come back and listen to what they're doing. I hope that you'll also consider how we treat the stories of victims and those who have been touched by true crime really matters. Thank you again for listening.